Yeah, Matt, what's the what's the minimum standard time in seconds to get the gun out of the holster and blow the dust bunnies out of the hammer before you get it into two-handed grip hey, in, you say, in New York? You say that all the time, make poke fun of me. <laughs> Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macrow. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts. Hello and welcome to Meet the Pressers. I'm Matt Mallory and this is my good friend, Clint Macro. We're here to talk about shooting, self-defense, faith, political activism, all that fun stuff. Self-defense, we have a phenomenal guest, a legend in the training industry. Uh, he's been all around the world. Yeah, our guest today is the legendary Tom Givens. Tom is is a, a, a tremendous instructor, someone that's been around a long time, uh, is the founder of Rangemaster. And, and a lot of the defensive data that we quote in our civilian courses stems from pretty much most of the, the uh, research that Tom has done. And I would like to talk about that at some point in time. Tom, thank you for coming on the show. It's a tremendous honor to have you here today. Glad to be here. This episode is brought to you by... Mountain Man Medical. The right medical training and gear should be accessible to every American. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, ASP, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by other fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. So we had mentioned the, the uh, data. You know, we always talk in our classes and, uh, about how the majority of dynamic critical incidents when it comes to civilians happens in that 9 to 15 foot range. And, uh, you know, you've, when I first heard about that data, I actually was working with uh, another trainer and, and he he dropped that out there. We said, why are we training at this distance? He says, well, let me tell you why. A man named Tom Givens. What, how did that come about? Were you prompted to do that? Was that something you did on your own? Or were you seeing inconsistencies with a lot of the law enforcement data that would have been quoted prior to that that didn't quite jive with what had happened with maybe some of your students? Actually, it's a combination of, of a lot of things. Uh, you know, for decades, the only real information we had were law enforcement sources. And when you look at them, and try to extrapolate that to the civilian side, uh, it doesn't doesn't work very well because the, the context is so different. Mm -hmm. For instance, an awful lot of their shootings occur at contact distance because they're taking people into custody. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've tried for decades to find some way to put handcuffs on somebody by telekinesis, but it doesn't work. At some point, we actually got to put our hands on the guy. When you put your hands on the guy, it's his last opportunity to resist before he gets cuffed and stuffed. And it's where an awful lot of police shootings occur because of that. Uh, once they're in physical contact, uh, and then one of the other gets a weapon out, and then before you know it, somebody's shot. That really skews the statistics. The private citizens have no business whatsoever trying to take people into custody. Uh, they have no business trying to hold people. They have no business putting hands on sus criminal suspects. We want them to either run away or fall down, one or the other. They really they don't want anything else. So that, that's one uh, thing that really skews the stats, if you simply go by law enforcement stats, which is what we did for decades because there really wasn't a database for private citizen shootings. When uh, started uh, 
training facility in Memphis. Memphis is one of the, uh, this year it's rated as the most violent metropolitan area in the U.S. Uh, you've got a one in 80 or so chance of being involved in an aggravated assault, just that one crime, just in one year. So that gives you just an idea. Give you another idea, there are 40 hospitals in the metropolitan area. Uh, one of them gets most of the gunshot wounds. They don't get all of them, but they get most of them. In 2013 is the last year I bothered to check, but in 2013, they treated 3,100 people for gunshots. Wow. That's an average of about eight or nine a day. So you get to get the idea that's, that's a pretty violent place. Yeah. So for a long time, I, I investigated violent crime there, and I, I kept seeing the same trends over and over and over again. But then uh, when we started our training facility there, operated for 18 years, we trained thousands of people. When you train thousands of students in an environment that violent, you're going to have a fair number of students involved in things. Uh, when, for the 18 years we actually owned the facility, it was easy for people to just stop by my office, stick their head in and say, hey, can I talk to you a minute? And call them in. And the next thing I know, I'll be briefing and shooting. And about average four or five of those a year. Yeah. And I started seeing the same things over and over and over again in these. And, it, and as I said, it really didn't track with what we see in the law enforcement side. Uh, if you think about it, since they're not taking people into custody, they're not doing felony vehicle stops, they're not, not doing a lot of things that involve law enforcement shootings. What do they involve? That, the vast majority of the time, they involve non robbery. Uh, there are other reasons private citizens wind up shooting people. <clears throat> but if you'll think about it, somebody trying to carjack you at gunpoint, somebody trying to hold up your small business, somebody robbing you in the parking lot of the gas station, 7-Eleven, the bank, wherever it may be, somebody kicking down your door with a gun in hand. Those are all variations of armed robbery. Uh, that is the basic motivation in each of those different crimes. Mm-hmm. So when I say an armed robbery is the most likely scenario for a private citizen to have to shoot. That's that's why. Well, what's the key key word in armed robbery? Armed. Armed. Armed robberies don't start with a physical confrontation and then back off and draw a weapon. The whole idea of the bad guy having a gun or a knife or whatever is to terrorize you into compliance from a few steps away, then come in and take the stuff. So in our culture, we tend to talk to strangers in about three steps, something like that. Uh, to the length of a car, basically. Typical American the man's 16 feet long, so that's essentially five yards. Three steps is essentially three yards. So in looking at these over and over again, we found that the vast majority of them occurred in that three to five yard envelope because that's where we talk to strangers, that's where we interact with people on the parking lot. That's where robberies typically occur. As I said, uh, with the exception, there's an exception, and that's <clears throat> hand-to-hand dope deals. If you're doing hand-to-hand dope deals, you get in a lot of contact distance shootings just like Police officers do, mm-hmm. but if you're not in the dope business, that's that's pretty rare, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I suppose if you're in a hand-to-hand dope deal, you might lose your justification if it's a stand-your-ground yeah. state too. <laughs> yeah, and and none of my students have been dope dealers, so that's, so that's. But I'm just pointing out, as a private citizen, that's probably the only place that a contact shoes that come in into play. Really, uh, if if they're there to rob you or carjack you, it's going to start off a few steps away get compliance, then move in, take wallet, car keys, whatever it is they want. So we see these things over and over again. Now, are there exceptions? Yeah. Uh, when we were in Memphis all those years and it was easy to report in, we had over 60 that did report in. Uh, exactly two involved physical contact. One of those completely accidental. So really one intentional physical contact. And we had three that occurred at or beyond 15 yards. Uh, Completely justified, absolutely necessary. One at 15, 
one is 17, one is 22 yards. But again, those are the other end of the spectrum. Those are um, exceptions at the other end. When you take out the couple of contact on one end and, and a few longer distance on the other end, that leaves over 90% occurring in that 35 yard envelope where the vast majority of civilian violence occurs. So that's where we spend the bulk of our training time. That's interesting. You, you'd, um, I'm sure that you'd agree practicing on anything over 15 or, or under nine is, is still smart, but the majority of your training, just like the majority of those contacts being nine to 15 feet, that's right. where the bulk would need to be. Right. right. Try, <clears throat> try to structure your training uh, based on reality and mm-hmm. be prepared for the outliers. Don't, don't, you don't want to be shocked. Just give you a clue. Uh, the guy who had to shoot at 22 yards had to engage a guy all the way across the street on the far sidewalk. Successfully fired one, fired one round, hit the guy right in the center and started, and that was that. But while he was sitting in my office telling me about that, you, you can almost see the light bulb coming over his head. He said, you know, when I had to shoot that guy all the way across the street, it never occurred to me that I was a statistical exception. I just had to deal with it. Hmm. And, uh, that's a pretty insightful statement. Yeah. Now, when, when we had the, the store there in Memphis, the, the training center, uh, the, the cash register was actually just a PC, and it kept up with everybody's uh, transactions. So while that guy was there talking to me about that, I went out to the counter and pulled up his file. He had been to the, to the range to practice nine times in the 12 months prior to that shooting. Mm. I suspect that had some impact on his ability to deliver a precise shot all across the street. Yeah. But, and whenever he came in and practiced, he would do a little bit of work at 25 yards. Our, our range went 25 yards. And uh, that paid off. Now, he did a lot of his work, just like everybody else in that three, five, seven-yard range. But he made a point to do some shooting at distance. And sure enough, uh, paid off one day. Uh, should you spend a lot of time on it? No. Should it be something that when you're presented with it in the real world, your brain locks up and says, oh, crap, we can't do this now. It needs to be something you've done, have something you here to do. Definitely. Yeah, the, the, I always tell my students, if you know you can't make the shot, don't make the shot because there's, you know, the, the probability of a miss, the, the, you know, what's the penalty of a miss? You miss it and you hit somebody else's kid or a family that member. That all goes Yeah, yeah this, this guy um, didn't have any choice. The other guy's firing rounds at him with children around him. Mm. Stop the guy. But uh, he instructed his training in such a manner that it paid off and, and uh, had a conversation with Dave Spaulding and he's like, yeah, he says the law enforcement instructors are always about keeping hold of your gun and gun retention and shooting from retention positions And the military instructors are all about high precision marksmanship, racing to grab your carbine so you can call in air support. And he says, and all you civvy guys are all about do everything you can do so that you don't even have to get the gun out of the holster, just run away. And uh, that was kind of a little bit of a joke, but there's some truth to that as far as people's mindset and how we train our our students. And uh, I think a lot of people don't recognize that when they start to choose what instructor that they might be working with. Uh, Do you have any comments about that? One of the most important words in in our vocabulary as trainers is context. Uh, You you have to train to the appropriate context. Everything we do is driven by context. Uh, If you're trying to select a holster. Do I need a hunting holster? Do I need a police duty rig? Do I need a concealment holster? Those are absolutely different requirements. Yep. Hunting holster's got to cover the gun up, keep mud off it, keep wet brush off of it, protect it. It's going to be a great big gun. Don't care if anybody sees it. Uh, uniform duty rig for a cop's got to retain the gun in these struggles or in a bar full of drunk crazies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need a discreet concealment holster where I can wear a real gun, but concealed where I can access it immediately, but nobody knows I've got it. So those are absolutely different contexts. 
So one holster is not going to work in all three. Uh, same thing applies to picking a handgun. Do you want a target gun? Do you want a hunting gun? Do you want a self-defense gun? And the same thing applies to training. What am I training for? What What are the likely scenarios that I would face? What are the skills I would need to face them? And then find a trainer that fits that. Trying to dovetail high-speed door kicker techniques into staying live on the Walmart parking lot is probably not a good idea. Any more than thousand-yard rifle shooting is going to help somebody in a fight across the bedroom in the dark. This is Akil Kadir. And I'm Tiffany Johnson with Citizen Safety Academy, and you are watching Meet the Pressers with Clint Macro and Matt Mallory. Meet the Pressers. A lot of people know who you are, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background. What led you up to becoming a, a trainer and then uh, being a legend in the industry as you are? <laughs> And I, I mean, I mean that very respectfully. A lot of times, legend has a. I am still alive, just barely. <laughs> well, uh, as I mentioned, I lived in Memphis for a very long time. Put in uh, quite a few years there in law enforcement work, both in patrol and investigation. So, I got to participate in a little bit of violence, but I got to investigate a metric buckload of it. So I've got a pretty good idea of what happens in, in violent confrontations, uh, having studied literally thousands of them over the years. I was really disappointed with the training I received. Of course, we're talking about in the 70s. Um, in the 70s, the, the closest line on, on the police firing range was the seven-yard line. We didn't do anything but below that. Uh, the training was, even to me as a kid, I, I recognized that you know, this has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing. going to be doing with a gun. Uh, nothing. So I started seeking outside training really early on. Um, had the good fortune to uh, be mentored by Jeff Cooper way back when in the 70s, early 80s. And through him, met a number of other pretty talented trainers and experienced people and got kind of started on the right track. Oh, uh, no, I don't teach what Jeff did. No, I don't teach what, what he taught at Gunsight in 1977, 1978. We've all evolved. Uh, if you're mm -hmm. any good at this at all, you, you evolve over time. But that's, that was where my foundation came from and got, got a good start. I, I would say, Jeff didn't teach you how to shoot. He taught me a lot more about how to teach, which I'm eternally grateful for. While I was in uh, that law enforcement role, I went through all the uh, institutional schools. I've been through the NRA Law Enforcement Firearms Instructor School, my tactical shooting instructor school, been through the FBI Police Firearms Instructor School, uh, Army Instructor School, and probably two dozen other things. Um, was involved in competitive shooting pretty much all my life. So on the rifle team in high school, shot uh, PPC early in the police career. Was involved in setting up IPSC. I was the original section coordinator for much of the southeastern U.S., won a couple of state championships in that game. Uh, later, being a slow learner, I was involved in setting up IDPA. My IDPA member number is A00008, so it gives you an idea when I got involved in that. Won two state and a couple of regional championships in that game. Uh, been involved in researching this stuff for a long time. I, I don't do so much of it now, but I used to do a fair bit of expert witness work on firearms and firearms training related cases. That, that requires a lot of research. Behind me on the uh, wall behind me, you can see a little bitty piece of my bookshelf. Uh, bookshelf takes up an entire wall of this room. There are over 350 volumes there that pertain just to our field of study. Uh, that, that's uh, taking a while to amass that. There's a good bit of information there. There's, there's a lot more information about gunfighting available in this country than most people realize, but you have to kind of hunt for it. It's not Obviously, that kind of thing doesn't make the New York Times bestseller list, so you got to kind of look for it. Um, written six published textbooks and 
chapters in four other people's books uh, in this in this area. And uh, for a long time, uh, I've had over 150 magazine articles published. For a long time, I was on the masthead of, stat, of uh, SWAT magazine. And uh, my assignment every month, my column was to go to a different school and see how they did things and write them up for the magazine. That's a dream job for a trainer. I got mm-hmm. to go around and uh, steal, uh, audit how other people do things. <laughs> and uh, take That's all cool. sorts of those snippets and tidbits and working in our programs. So uh, our programs are amalgamation of probably 40 or 50 other trainers or a nugget from this guy and a nugget from that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I find something, I think the only thing that separates me from a lot of other trainers is I actually credit the guy who came up with it. Uh, instead of trying to find uh, trying to invent everything after black powder. I just, uh, <laughs> I just got to make sure I, You didn't invent the internet? Yeah. No, but I had, I had a hand in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You no. Know, but uh, but uh, I've been doing this now for 50 years and for a living for almost 25. So I've got, got some clues, I think. Excellent. Definitely. Well, you know, the, the one thing, like when we had coffee in Florida back, uh, it was January. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing that I, I admire about you is that, that you see how things are changing. And you take courses, right? I mean, you, you, do, you do stuff to improve your knowledge. Every, almost everything we do is a learned skill. Almost everything we do is a perishable skill. That's something that I, I profess to my students and I take courses because it's perishable. And if I don't, then I'm behind the curve. Not, not only are the skills perishable, and, and you've probably figured out if you want to shoot a lot less, become a full-time trainer. Um, <laughs> yes. Very true. Very yes. true. There are there are months that if I don't demo in class, I don't get to shoot. So I, I demo in class just get some trigger time, so I see anything else. But uh, not not only is it a perishable skill, but things evolve. We don't have the same equipment we had 30, 40 years ago. Sure. Yep. Uh, none of the handguns that people come to class with that existed 40 years ago. You know, Glock didn't come along until the mid-80s. So um, we don't have the same equipment we had. Uh, the threat definitely has evolved over the years. Uh, yep. we're, we're seeing a completely different type of bad guy and completely different equipment among the bad guys. Yep. Um, technique has evolved as we learn more. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, nobody uh, would even think of a red dot on a handgun, but uh, now they're commonplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't try to evolve with the equipment and the techniques and, and, and the threats uh, then stagnate and become pretty much irrelevant. Uh, as long as I've been doing this, I try to, I try really hard to take at least two classes a year from somebody outside my own organization, just so I can see what's new, what's going on. One of the things you get to do doing that is so uh, observe everybody else in the class. You get to see how their equipment works, what guns have they got, what holsters have they got. Uh, you get to see different technique. One thing, especially for trainers, I think it's really critical to keep doing that. Because as a trainer, you may explain something to somebody, say three different ways, and they still give you that little cocked puppy head look. <laughs> and um, tell them the fourth way, and the light bulb comes on. Well, it's hard, especially for newer trainers, to come up with so many ways to explain the same thing. But every time you take a, a basic level, and people hate the word basic, but a foundational class from a different instructor, you're going to find different ways to explain the same thing. All of us explain essentially the same skills. Mm-hmm. in essentially the same way with, with minor variations. But those variations will help you as a new trainer. Uh, when you hear five ways to explain something, then, then it's more well, likely that you're going to have a successful way to explain that to somebody who just doesn't get it the way that you traditionally say it. So I think there's huge value in that. Um, you know, in the last year or so, I took uh, Gabe White's uh, pistol class. Which Gabe's one of the up-and-coming up stars in this, I think. And... Uh, 
immediately. I picked up a couple of things that were immediately plugged into our program, which of course I uh, gave him credit for. He is he is really sharp and came with some lady. You kind of think where I said, No, you dumb. Yes, you've been doing this for forty years. Why don't you think of that yourself? And, uh, <laughs> He's razzing the razzer. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's just you know, that's I should have thought of that, and that's a perfect way to explain that and, and uh, we immediately adopted that. I took Ernie Langdon's pistol mm-hmm. class. I've known Ernie since late 1990s and we've uh, tried to take each other's classes but just like everybody else in this we all have essentially the same schedule because you take out the christmases and the easters there's only about 35 weekends in a year and uh, i work all of them so i actually canceled the class so i could take earnings because i've been trying for years and it just didn't work so wow. good. Just gonna make it happen and no uh, he picked up a little error i was committing that uh, i wasn't aware of because you're almost never aware of your own errors Yep. Yeah. And no, my shooting immediately improved. And again, that's after decades of doing this. Uh, I don't know it all. Uh, I, I know a good bit of it, but I don't know it all. And it needs anybody else. But when you pick up enough pieces from here and there, you get a pretty good idea what the puzzle is going to look like. What do you think needs to change in the industry? Thing, things that are out there that are going on now that you think could be detrimental based on statistics that you've seen, just like going from law enforcement to, to <clears throat> the civilian statistics, what kind of things do you think need to change more or go away completely? You know, that's a tough question. It is. Yeah. It's a loaded 30, question. That's, that's 35 a- years ago, I would have confidently given you some answers, but now I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Red Dot? Uh, they're coming, whether you like it or not. You think it'll be just like, um, you know, semi-automatics now being, you know, polymer guns being the big thing in the industry, 1911s and Beretta's yeah. being gone? They're, you won't see them across the board because they had expense and, and a huge, mm. huge percentage of the gun buying public it was always one of the cheapest, whatever, whatever it may yeah. be. And it's going to add expense to the manufacturer of the gun. You know, there's a fair bit of machining involved in addition to the cost of the optic itself. So I think you going to remain something more like people who are a little more into shooting are going to have. In other words, you're not going to walk into a gun shop and every gun in the rack have, have an optic on. I think you're going to see a lot more of them, though. Yeah. Uh, my personal opinion is that uh, on a rifle, you've got to have one. But on a handgun, they're, they're definitely optional. And, and the higher your skill level, the more likely they are to, or the, the more commitment you have to put in time and training, I think, the more value you're going to see from them. What I see with people who don't put in the time is that it does improve their shooting at 20 or 25 yards as compared to iron sights, but it tends to slow them down at, at um, the closer distance where the vast majority of the crap happens. Yeah, right. I don't want to improve the 5% problem at the expense of the 95% problem. Well, so you know, immediately yeah. somebody who's skillful with red dots goes, oh, no, it doesn't slow me down. No, it doesn't slow you down. That's mm-hmm. the thing. It doesn't slow you down because you put in the time and the effort. Uh, when we see somebody with less than that amount of effort, for instance, when they make their standard two-hand presentation to get that gun exactly where they want it, they find the dot pretty quickly. But if we say, shoot that target over there with one hand, then we see them spending an enormous amount of time hunting for the dot when they could have already had rounds off with irons. Yeah. So it, it's not a panacea. It's not a fix-all. It doesn't turn some guy who just bought his first pistol into a competent gunman who's got an optic on it. That, that's not what it does. It enhances capability of people who are going to put in the time to use it well. I think they're probably... They're probably robust enough, and batteries have probably come to the point now where those early arguments against them are probably invalid now. 
Well, I mean, you look at the carbines even 15 years ago to think that there that you wouldn't have irons on a carbine was laughable. But I admit I've got a I've got a couple carbines with no irons. They just have a red dot on it. I, I've found that the red dots have been useful for folks that have eye troubles, like they can't see their front sight because of because of the where their vision is or yeah, uh, you know, that type of thing. It's been useful. I found. Uh, that's uh, uh, you mentioned that. But that's that's one of my little pet things. You don't have to see the sight clearly. You have sure. to see the linear relationship. Oh, um, I have a uh, set of slides, for instance, uh, in PowerPoint, where I've got a set of iron sights, front and rear sight, correctly lined up, completely and totally out of focus, just a fuzzball. But when you look at it, you, you can tell they're lined up. Mm -hmm. So then the next slide is the exact same sight alignment, but we just unfuzz it a little bit, bring it a little bit more in focus. They're still, and then we bring them in sharp, clear, crystal focus. They're no better. They're not any more lined up when they're in sharp 100% focus than they are when they're just a fuzzball. If you're looking through the hole in the rear sight and you see the front sight, your sights are lined up. Mm -hmm. You don't need more than that for your typical shooting. So um, I, th I think that's that's another holdover from the bullseye days. You know, one of the holdovers from the bullseye days was you don't have time to use the sights, which is obviously bullshit. Uh, you can use the sights in a couple hundredths of a second. That's plenty of time. And now you know where your gun's pointing. Without that, you're no better off than a blind man. But um, a flash sight picture can be acquired without a sharp, meticulous focus. Uh, hell, I, I never see my sights clearly, ever. <laughs> even the, the I, I'll be 68 in a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, Hackathorn told me when he turned 50, all the hair left his head went to his front sight. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. That is funny. Well, but it's true. That yeah. is funny. Hey, so I, I don't. See, I never see my sights the way you see in an illustration in a uh, manual. Mm. But I can still hit whatever I want to hit. It, like I said, if you look through the window in the rear sight and you see the front sight, even if it's the fuzzy thing up front and the fuzzy thing in the rear, I, I use a black rear sight and a red front sight. If I see red and black, sights are lined up. Mm. So I think people obsess over minute detail that they just don't have to have for the kind of shooting you're doing. The only other thing about lasers and lights and optics and whatnot, it makes a gun bigger and bulkier and requires a special holster. Yeah. If you do any time at all teaching this stuff, you learn really quickly the hardest single hurdle you face is not teaching people to mechanically operate the gun. It's not teaching them to get hits. It's teaching them to carry their damn gun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On a routine, daily all the time basis because you don't get to pick what day you're going to need your gun. Nobody's going to call you up and say, better bring your gun today. About 12 hours now, I'm going to try to kill you. You're not going to do that. You're going to find yourself an, oh, crap, here I am. And you've either got the gun or you don't. We wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have finished our coffee if I didn't have my gun on me that day. <laughs> you know, if I knew at 2 o'clock at Maine and Elm I was going to need a gun, I just wouldn't go to Maine and Elm at 2 o'clock. I'd go somewhere else. That's Touché. right. Touché. That's right. Not, my Mark II pistol ball has been down for repairs for a while, and so I don't know where the hell I'm going to need it again. So the Mark, just, Mark II crystal ball. <laughs> an improved version, but it broke like most technology. Um, so that, that's a real issue. So anything that makes the gun bigger, bulkier, harder to conceal, or requires a more specialized holster that only comes from a few vendors is not working in our best interest when we're trying to get a student to carry a damn gun. I'd much rather he had a stripped down plain Jane, nothing on the Glock 19 on him than a whiz bang wonder gun at home in the sock drawer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it 
one's going to do a lot better than the other. Agreed. The old cliche, what's the first rule of gunfighting? Bring a gun. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Now, do, do you find that, um, you know, that, that safeties and different things like that? I mean, obviously, we, I'm assuming we're all in the same uh, thought process of having a round in the chamber. If you, if you got to bring the gun, have it ready to have it ready to go. What are your thoughts? I guess it should have been that bring a loaded gun. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, there, you could add that. You know, just make sure you give me credit. Um, <laughs> the um, having the gun with uh, you know with a safety, a mechanical safety, a grip safety. One of the things I do, and I love to hear your opinion on it, is I tell my students that I'm not a big fan of grip safeties for the simple fact is you you never know when you're going to get a good grip. We we want to get a good grip, but you can't guarantee you're going to get a good grip. But if there's a student that's really bad about this, right, their booger hooker isn't where it's supposed to be. Um, I don't want to. So what are your thoughts on a safety? Group safeties and thumb safeties are not going to fix that. That, that person yeah. shouldn't have done. Or practice more. Well, one or the other. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, that's, uh, if you ever train with me, one of the first things you'll find out is after 50 years of doing this for a living, I've got a pretty well-developed sense of gallows humor. I, I can laugh about just about anything. I, I laugh at me. I laugh at you. I laugh at you a lot more often. <laughs> but I have no sense of humor whatsoever about stupid gun handling. And yeah. I, I hate political correctness. It's not improper gun handling techniques. It's stupid gun handling. It gets yeah. yep. And the stupidest part of stupid gun handling is having your finger in the trigger or when you don't want the gun to fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, zero tolerance for that. I won't talk to you three or four times about that. I'll talk to you a couple times about that and then say, just tell off the range because yep. um, you have no business with a gun. What makes your gun fire? Putting pressure on the trigger. What keeps yep. your gun from I put pressure on the trigger. I don't care how many bells and whistles you put on the gun. If it's capable of firing, then you can fire it unintentionally. So the safety's uh, not something that we substitute for training. Uh, I don't care how many safeties you have or don't have. Uh, you know, Glock has no manually operated safety, and it's fine as long as you don't put your finger in the trigger. You know, 1911's got a manual safety and a, and a passive safety. It's not any safer or less safe if you have one around with your finger in the trigger guard. Very so, true. Very true. The only my only thing about safeties is that you need to be careful and make sure it's one that's actually ergonomic and that you can actually operate under stress. So you have to remember that guns aren't designed by shooters, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of safeties are in the wrong place, so they're they're um, difficult to operate in a hurry. You need to look at the way your hand closes when you grab something. You don't want a safety that moves upward because your thumb's moving downward, not upward when you grasp something, especially in a hurry. So a, a proper ergonomically designed say, like the thumb safety on 1911. That was put there by somebody who shot a pistol a lot. Definitely. Right. So you put it under a thumb. Uh, that's an example of a properly designed safety. One that you got to reach up onto the slide and push upward instead of downward. Uh, that ain't going to work. Hi, this is Nikki Goser. You can find me on stockedanddefenseless.com. This is Meet the Pressers with Matt and Clint. Meet the Pressers. Well, any other words of wisdom? Any other thoughts in the industry that uh, that that our listeners and visit and viewers can uh, partake from you that you want to get out there? Well, you know the, the typical caveat that right now we've probably got the most people involved in firearms training that have ever been in the history of this country. Uh, you can't throw a rock without hitting a firearms instructor somewhere. Um, that's what that was the other day. That guy, I got hit. <laughs> you got hit by the rock, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would just just caution people be be wary of of the credentials in the background of the instructor. Just just because I hung out a shingle doesn't mean you're doing anything in this field. You know, if you're if you're a golf 
coach gives you bad advice, you might get embarrassed on the golf course, but that'd be about it. Tennis coach gives you bad advice, you might lose a tennis match, but the defensive shooter coach gives you bad advice, you might get killed or go to prison. Uh, Claude Werner calls those negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I tend to agree with you. That, that's kind of suboptimal solution there. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with life and death. Uh, this is a, about the only field a typical person is going to be involved in where just a momentary screw-up has monumental repercussions. We're, we're, talking about, <clears throat> we're talking about problems of biblical proportions. If you misuse that gun, you hit the wrong person, you shoot somebody you shouldn't have in the legal sense, or you miss and hit the wrong person downrange. Uh, aside from the legal issues, there are moral and, and ethical implications there. And you shouldn't you shouldn't want that to happen. You should be taking some pretty good steps to make sure that doesn't happen. I see uh, some trainers with military background teaching stuff that frankly is going to get somebody locked up. Uh, yep. What you can do in Afghanistan and what you can do in Atlanta are not the same thing. Very true. I think. Uh, I think you should be really careful about that. Uh, people from strictly law enforcement background have, have a, a skewed view of uh, some things. So, uh, I, I would, number one thing I would say is be careful about with whom you train. Uh, pick wisely. Train with more than one organization so you get um, more pieces of the puzzle. And uh, kind of use the simple test of, does this make sense in my context? Is this something that, that I can use in, in the world that I live in, uh, that I operate in? Would you uh, just like to tell everyone the best way to get a hold of you, your website, if, if you're on social media, and, and give your uh, connection and information? Okay. Our website's real simple, rangemaster.com. Uh, uh, go right to us. All the contact information's right there. The um, One thing we do is we put out a newsletter every month, and uh, those are archived there. In the last 10 or 12 years, I've at least archived there on the website. So there's a lot of free information there. So uh, that, that's a good resource for people. Also, there's a, a section on the tactical conference with uh, videos from each of the uh, last three or four that give people a pretty good idea of uh, what we do and what goes on there. So give them, give them an opportunity to actually take a look at that. And then there's a link to sign up for it there. Super, sir. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Definitely uh, appreciate you coming on. And we look forward to seeing you out on the, out on the range. All right. Come see us in class. Definitely. Thank you very much, sir. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Good day. Be the first kid on your block to have your official issue Meet the Pressers logoed gear. Visit the Meet the Pressers merchandise page on BallisticInc.com to get your high-quality, American-made Meet the Pressers shirts and hats. There's a lot of sponsors that make this show possible, like Mantis. Make sure you check them out and give them your business. This episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. The right medical training and gear should be accessible to every American. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, ASP, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by other fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe, share, click the little bell, come on Patreon, help support us that way, come to one of our classes, or host us, we can come to you and do one of our courses at your location. So until next time, adieu. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers. 